Let's return to the Word together. First off, it is a joy to be back with you. Your brothers and sisters in Kingwood are praying for us this morning. As we turn to the Word, let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are faithful. That you are the one that keeps all of your promises. And you've done that in your Son, Christ Jesus. Thank you that you've given the Holy Spirit to your people. To open blind eyes. To give us eyes to see you as you really are worthy of our praise and our adoration and our trust. Thank you that you've given us this word to read. That you have breathed this out by the Spirit. So that we can know you and love you the way you deserve. And so would you do exactly that this morning? Would you continue to gather your people? Continue to strengthen and encourage and keep your people until we see you face to face. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be picking up in verse 25. The last time we were together, we started looking at how Jesus grew, grows rather his church. He had promised in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not stand against it. He promised in Acts 1.8, moments before his ascension, that his disciples would bear witness to him in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we've worked through Acts, we've seen that begin at Pentecost. We've seen the church continue to grow and develop up into chapter 6 and beyond. In Acts 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see the gates of hell on full display as the gatekeepers kill Stephen and scatter the church. And yet the result is that the gospel goes through Judea and into Samaria just as Jesus promised. This risen, enthroned Jesus is unstoppable no matter how hard Saul and the others try. We saw Jesus building his church through scattering and persecution, using what the Sanhedrin had meant for evil to accomplish his good plans. And we saw Jesus building his church through attention-grabbing gospel power. As Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven chosen back in chapter 6 to feed widows and to head off division in the church, as Philip traveled into Samaria to give good news to those who most Jews would have seen as hopelessly outside, even if they were physically related. And we saw Philip working mighty acts of healing, and he drove out demons, but those works pointed back to his words, words that focused on the Jesus who welcomed outsiders who pointed them and brought them to a father who would be worshipped, not in a certain temple in a certain city, but everywhere, in spirit and in truth. We saw the apostles send Peter and John to look over what was happening up north. And through the laying on of hands, they gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who believed. And you might remember, we said that That isn't an indication of how the Holy Spirit usually comes in all times and places. Here, the the timing intentionally highlights the church's unity. Remember, just as the Holy Spirit had come on those in Jerusalem at Pentecost, now with the teaching of the apostles, 
comes the Spirit, showing that this is one church, one body, not a church for Jews here and a church for Samaritans over here so we don't have to have those messy conversations of how do we deal with each other now. One body of Christ. We're going to see the same thing when we get to chapter 10, but that won't be this morning. We see Simon Magus, Simon the magician, the one who had done mighty acts in the name of God, but whose focus had been on his own greatness and his own power, encouraging others to call him the great power of God. We saw Simon believe Philip's words. We saw him baptized. We saw him amazed by someone who had greater power than his own. But we also saw Simon try to buy in on a share of the apostles' authority, offering silver in exchange for the right to distribute the Holy Spirit of God. And when Simon Peter rebuked him, warning that hell waits for those who try to build their kingdoms by treating Christ's kingdom as a timeshare, we saw a magician who believed that warning, who asked for prayer. But we aren't told whether he walked away from his sin. What we are told is that whatever happened to Simon, Christ's church was protected and grew. And as Philip and the apostles return to Jerusalem here in verse 25, the scene shifts. And we see Jesus at work elsewhere, still building his church by the reading and teaching of his powerful word. The Holy Spirit says through Luke, starting in verse 25, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they, being Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. And so we see in these verses that the Spirit will give gospel opportunities. Not only did the apostles approve Philip's message, remember they had gone up, they had checked this out, confirming that the Lord was indeed working amongst these Samaritans, these ones that didn't belong, but who do now. They not only approve his message, but they join him in preaching to Samaritans as they head back to Jerusalem. But in the meantime, Philip is given new orders and a new direction. Having preached up north, now an angel of the Lord sends him south. Now, when we hear angel of the Lord, just as we do throughout the Old Testament, don't think of some being that is out doing its own thing, bringing its own message... This isn't touched by an angel. This is a created being, infinitely below God himself, and yet carrying the message of this Lord. Whoever the messenger is, whatever the messenger is, the message carries the weight of Jesus himself speaking to Philip. Because in this new covenant, when we hear Lord This Lord has been revealed as no one else but Jesus Christ. 
The one that has been exalted by the Father, given a name above every name. That name of Lord that says He is the ruler of heaven and earth. And so this spirit, this being, this angel comes and says, Philip, you're going to leave here, you're going somewhere else. He's not told, follow up and consolidate gains and make sure they get organized. He's not told, strike while the iron is hot. He's told, walk away from this massive movement of the Spirit and head out to a highway in the desert. He'll travel through, Jeru- through Judea and then head down toward the coast to the, to the Philistines' old stomping grounds. And beyond that, the road leads on to Egypt. He's going to walk past Jewish homes, but as he goes out, as the fields trail off into scrub brush, there aren't very many homes. There's no one to preach to except for tumbleweeds. Philip doesn't stand there pondering, is this a good strategy? Should I do this? He obeys. And when he does, when he gets out onto that deserted road, he sees an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this man wouldn't be from what today we, you and I call Ethiopia. Well, what the ancients called Ethiopia, we would know as Sudan, the area just south of Egypt. And in that culture, most high-ranking officials were required to be eunuchs. The fact that they couldn't start their own royal line cut down dramatically on the number of royal coups. It was safer to make sure they weren't going to have children who might maybe fit well with a crown on their head. In fact, that that word for eunuch sometimes was just used as shorthand for the person who managed the treasury. And we're told that this man was in charge of of the treasury of Candace, or Kandake, the queen of the Ethiopians. That word Kandake, it was a title like pharaoh or president or queen. She'd be the queen mother. She had her own Areas that she was in charge of, she had massive authority, at least as much authority as the king himself. This is a man of standing and of power. But being a eunuch also means that this man, even though he had traveled all the way to Jerusalem, some 1,500 miles on the road each way, he had traveled to Jerusalem to worship, he would not have been allowed to walk into the temple. He could have stood outside. He couldn't become a full proselyte even. He couldn't actually officially join Judaism. He could practice it. He could read the the words. He could pray. He could not be considered Jewish, and he could not enter in as far as the others. His darker skin wouldn't necessarily have led in that culture to people looking at him differently, but they would have noticed him. He looked different. He's an outsider. He's connected with Judaism. He's probably practicing Judaism, but he's always kept at a distance. I was thinking just this morning, that kind of travel, he was, he's not coming every year. If he's traveling by chariot, it's still going to take him two to three months each way to stand outside of the temple to pray. So here's a powerful, wealthy man who's been to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's heading home. And he's not walking. He's in a chariot. Now he's probably not flying down the road like we picture Ben-Hur. He's got 1,500 miles. The shocks aren't very good. The roads aren't very good. 
but he's not walking. We aren't told he probably has a driver, so he's free to sit there and read. Or maybe he's just multitasking, some folks do. Now, I don't know if when Philip sees this first century limousine with a guy who's clearly some kind of a foreign dignitary, I, I don't know if he would have just naturally looked at, hey, I think I'll run over there and interrupt his reading. But that's exactly what the Holy Spirit tells him to do. And once again, Philip obeys. The Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip runs up to him. So what do we do with this? A lot of times as we're reading Scripture, our thought immediately runs to, so what do I learn from this? What should I do about this? Does this mean I need to stand out on the street here and flag down traffic? At one level, we remember the Acts is history. As we read Acts, most of it is not in the form of a command, go do likewise. It is telling us how the church was born and how it grew. This is authoritative, spirit-given history telling us our, our family story. And so those of us who are in Christ can read this and say, this is part of how we got here. And we give thanks for that. We rejoice in that. We look and we say, this is the next step of what Jesus had promised to do. He's already spread this gospel into Judea, into Samaria. Now he's beginning to reach beyond that to the uttermost parts of the earth. So for those of us who weren't born on a strip alongside the Mediterranean, we look and we rejoice and say, this is heading our way. When we get to chapter 10, he's going to be more explicit in bringing in those who are outside of the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture. He's going to bring in someone who is nowhere closely connected. This is the first step of that new phase. But at another level, there is a chance here to stop and think about how this gospel spreads. Philip had a direct word from God. Go to this place, speak to this person. It couldn't have been clearer if there was a neon sign floating above that chariot pointing at the Ethiopian eunuch. Say, talk to him. Should you and I wait for a similar prompting? Should we wait to hear some kind of a voice saying, psst, that one, go talk to them? Now remember, this wasn't the norm for Philip either. When Philip went to Samaria, he began simply preaching the word to anyone who will listen. And some of them... Listen, some of them don't. What we see here is a unique moment in what God is doing. This is a moment in which people that would never have been a part of the church are now being brought in. In an era when the Spirit has already given us the New Testament, He has given us now this word written down. You and I don't have to wait for a spoken command to talk to that coworker or that neighbor or that friend. Sometimes we may have a sense of, you know, I, I really need to talk to so-and-so. Is that the Holy Spirit talking? Maybe. Is he able to providentially speak to us and bring our attention to somebody? Yes. Or it may simply be the outworking of that same spirit at work making us 
so that we love Christ, so we love those around us, so that we want to love them by pointing them to this Lord that loved us first. Wherever that thought came from, we can be fairly sure it wasn't Satan talking to us. But we don't have to wait for a set feeling of that person, that person right now, I've got to talk to them. There's not going to be a wrong person to speak to about Jesus. We don't have to pray and fast and flip coins to look and say, should I talk to them? As ambassadors of the king, as those who love him and know everything that we are to him, it's reasonable that we're going to talk about the one we love. But a lot of times that first thought is followed by some others, isn't it? Oh, you know, this isn't the right time. It's not the right place. You know, what if they don't want to hear it? What if they do want to hear it, but they ask something and I don't know? What if I start to talk and suddenly the floor collapses and we all plummet or, or the, the ceiling falls? Okay, maybe you don't have those thoughts. But all of a sudden we start thinking about a million and two reasons why this isn't a good time to do that. And so we have to evaluate every thought we have. Maybe this really isn't the best time. We're in the middle of a test at school. We're in the middle of a delicate operation. Maybe this isn't the moment to start a conversation that that needs to be open-ended. If so, then we start thinking, okay, so when is a good time? Okay, as soon as this is over, you know, lunch break's coming up in an hour. You know, Thursday we both get off work at the same time. We start looking for opportunities. But we go through life confident that this sovereign father who loves pointing out his beloved son, we're confident that this reigning son who promised his people will tell his story. We're confident that the all-powerful spirit who prepares us to do everything that Christ wants us to do will make sure that we don't lack opportunities to tell this good news. There will be opportunities. Some of them, frankly, we, we look at it and we see them in the rearview mirror. You know, that would have been a fantastic chance. But that then spurs us to the next one and say, okay, I'm, I want to see that one. It will be there. And when we have that opportunity, you and I won't have to be clever enough to figure out our message. Because verse 30 reminds us that gospel opportunities lead to an open Bible. Verse 30 says, So Philip ran to him, And heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So Philip comes running up and as he gets close to the chariot, he hears familiar words. It just so happens that this high-ranking government official isn't working through his official correspondence. He's reading Isaiah. 
Now, it may seem strange to us as we read that, that Philip could hear what he was saying, what he was reading. But remember, in the ancient world, it was typical for people to read out loud. They recognize words are spoken. They have a different power when we hear them. And so, in the ancient world, it would have been very strange if he had been reading just to himself. He's speaking it out loud. And it should catch our attention that he has a copy of Isaiah. This is a world where books are copied by hand. He has either spent a lot of time copying himself, or he has paid someone else a large amount of money to pay for this book, this scroll that he can now take with him. This is not a casual interest. And some people have suggested that reading Isaiah would have been especially comforting to a man like this. Because when he goes just a little further, he's going to get to Isaiah 56, roughly three chapters later. And in Isaiah 56, verse 3, he'll read, Do not let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. He says there are going to be outsiders and eunuchs who are brought in and given a family and a people. It's what Isaiah was reading with us this morning in Psalm 87, isn't it? The idea that there are these outsiders that are declared, no, you were born here. You were born into my family, my people. And so as this man keeps reading, he's going to get to some very good news and maybe grimace a little bit, knowing that he was just standing outside the temple praying with a no admittance sign. But right now, he's squarely in what you and I know as Isaiah 53. And Philip asks him how the Bible study is going. Do you understand what you're reading? And that isn't Philip asking if hooked on phonics worked for him. Philip overhears the passage and he knows there's something going on in this passage that no one else that no one is going to fully comprehend unless they know about Jesus. This is Philip saying, I know something that you don't know, but I don't want you to miss it. And so this man from Ethiopia says in verse 31, How can I unless someone guides me? He says in verse 34, I ask you to Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? He says, I'm reading this, I'm hearing of this suffering servant, this one that pleases the Lord, and yet is crushed, and yet is bruised and rejected. And non-Christians who study Isaiah now have the very same question. So some have looked and said, well, is this Israel as a group? If you were to go speak with a rabbi, they're probably going to say, oh yes, this is the servant Israel. But Isaiah's been very emphatic that Israel has been the unfaithful bride, not the suffering servant. 
Israel is going to suffer. But it will be because of stubborn rebellion, not because of paying for others' sins. Some have looked and said, well, maybe this is Isaiah speaking of himself. It's his self-portrait. And surely he is a faithful servant of the Lord, and, and we are given to understand that he paid dearly for that. But the language of purchasing others' forgiveness at the cost of his blood goes too far for Isaiah. So what's going on here? This man is reading carefully He's asking exactly the right question. And he didn't have to ask Philip twice. So Philip immediately jumps in. There in verse 32, he, he reads with him, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. He hears of one who is sacrificed And doesn't fight to protect himself. An innocent one. The one that comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Philip says, I know who this is. And we aren't told where else he went in Scripture. It says that he began here. Maybe he jumped over to chapter 56 and picked up on that eunuch language. Maybe he pointed to a king who had no physical offspring. Maybe he jumped back to Psalm 87. Maybe he starts looking at King David and all of the promises that are fulfilled in David. Maybe he jumps ahead to Malachi and hears of the Lord himself coming to his temple. Wherever he went, his message wasn't based on Philip's own ideas and wishes. It's focused on what God has said. Now, does that mean that you and I If we're going to speak about Jesus, we have to have an open Bible in front of us to do so. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Does this mean that we need a good study Bible tucked away in our pocket, ready for our conversation? You and I live in a a time where we can actually pull that off. It's amazing. It doesn't mean that we have to have a Bible right there in front of us to say, let's run through the notes. It does remind us, though, that the very best way of speaking about Jesus is to go back and see how the Holy Spirit has spoken of Jesus. So that may mean in our conversation that we are quoting verses. Or we may be summarizing. We may be giving the broad overview without it being word for word. But we don't leave our testimony at the level of, well, here's what I'm kind of thinking Or here's how I like to imagine Jesus. Or your mileage may vary. We may well talk about our experience of how this Christ brings us to himself. And how he has changed us. But ultimately we're coming to, here's what Jesus says about Jesus. Here is what the Lord says. That doesn't mean that we are necessarily blasting away with a megaphone at six feet. It doesn't necessarily mean we are in the park on a soapbox. Some people do. Some people have had opportunities for conversations going out to the park, going here, going there, looking specifically, I'm going to walk up to a stranger and talk. It doesn't mean we have to do it that way. It does mean that when you and I speak of Christ, 
we aren't left to say, well, here's what I'm kind of imagining maybe he's like. We're able to say, here is who Jesus is. Because here's what Jesus says in his word. That gives us confidence. We don't have to make it up. That's what Peter tells us in 2 Peter, isn't it? He says, we didn't, he's an apostle, and he says, we didn't follow some cleverly designed story. We're eyewitnesses. We're telling you what happened. And you and I have the same privilege to say we weren't there, but we have eyewitness reports. We have utterly reliable statements about who this is, what he has done, why that changes you and me. And the more that we read and think through Scripture, the more you and I will see Jesus at work, preparing the way through the Old Testament, fulfilling everything in the New Testament. And that means that there will be more and more passages that make us happy when we hear someone muttering, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. The more times that we will have opportunities where someone says something, they say, you know, I was just reading about that the other day. I say, I I couldn't couldn't have designed this conversation better. Look how that fell in. And depending on the setting, we may or may not have a Bible in front of us. But that word is going to be in play through our conversation. And of course, as we keep reading, the eunuch doesn't simply listen and thank Philip for helping him better understand a challenging passage. Hearing that Jesus is the point of Isaiah 53 in all of history, the eunuch reacts. And so does everybody else who hears this word. Because every gospel opportunity leads to a decision. Verse 36, he says, Now as they, came down to the, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So we don't know how long Philip went on explaining Jesus, but at some point they passed a body of water. And Professor John Polhill points out, notice that Philip just happened to find this man on a desert road as he just happened to be reading from an amazingly rich messianic passage of the Old Testament and his presentation of the gospel just happens to reach a high point as water comes into view in the desert. The Holy Spirit had been very busy that day. Notice Philip doesn't have to close the sale. There, There have been books written about evangelism. Uh, There was one written a long time ago by a used car salesman saying, here's how how the way I sell a car maps onto selling Jesus. Finally, you get to a certain point and the emotions are high. You put the hand on the shoulder, ask them to bow their head. You bow your head and they'll, they'll resist for a moment. They'll cave in, repeat after me. 
Philip doesn't do that. He doesn't have to. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that has, has been at work here. And so as this man sees water, he says, something's going on here. Apparently the eunuch had heard enough about Christians to know that they baptized. Or else maybe he, he figured Judaism did that, maybe they did too. But he looks and he says, I want to tell you, I am one of you. There's no hanging back here. There's no wondering, can I be let in? I, I'm an outsider. I can't, I can't even join to worship as a Jew. The Spirit has changed him and the Spirit has convinced him he belongs here. And so now, depending on what translation of Scripture you have in front of you, you may see something strange of verse 37. So the New King James, at the end of verse 37, there's a footnote there that says that the NU text and the M text omit this verse. If you're reading from the New American Standard, there are brackets around it and a note of early manuscripts don't have this verse in them. If you're reading from the ESV or the NIV, you might notice it goes from verse 36 to verse 38. What's going on here is, as... People copied down scripture over the centuries. It looks like someone was copying down Acts, and when they got to this point, they said, okay, Philip had to have answered. The, the eunuch asks, what hinders me from being baptized? And a scribe looks and says, there's no way that Philip didn't give some kind of an answer there. He would have, there's no way he would have baptized someone who didn't understand who Jesus is. And that's probably true. What we have in verse 37 fits well with what Peter says back in Acts 2. But based on the, the great majority of manuscripts, uh, the, the ones we have a verse 37 in come a, a few centuries later. So it looks like Luke probably didn't write down verse 37. It doesn't mean that didn't happen. It means that Luke didn't feel like he needed to give us word for word everything that happened on that road. If you want to talk about that more later, we can do that. But the main idea is there, isn't it? This man heard Jesus speak through the Word, believed on Christ, and now he says, I want to be baptized as a sign of this new allegiance because baptism is a mark. I am walking away from everything that I've been. I am being united to Christ's death and His resurrection. I am washing myself from this old way I'm being brought into a new culture, a new family, a new life. We see that that's happening. As a freebie, notice that both of them went into the water. We remember that baptizo means to put something underwater or to immerse something. We, we notice everyone involved got wet. Now, over the years, you and I have heard various people say, guest preachers, evangelists, like to say things like, I preached to 600 people and there were 156 decisions. And we know, whether, we know what he means. The fact is, if there are 600 people listening, there are 600 decisions made. Every time the good news of Jesus is spoken, a person is going to either say yes or no. This morning, as you've heard about this Jesus who stops at nothing to build his church, who takes Philip 
miles out of his way to encounter one man with the gospel. As you've heard about this Jesus who lines things up perfectly so that this morning you have heard this news that Jesus is worth trusting and following, that he has a right to rearrange your life and mine and do whatever he sees fit with us. You have responded in one or two way, of two ways. You're either in the process of saying, no, I don't want that. I want to live my life. I don't want it interrupted. I want to be in charge. I want to be king and not this one that the Father declares king. Or you may have been filled with joy that there's a place for you to belong. A place to receive mercy from the hand of one who took our penalty. The one who was cut off in our place. But this morning you are making a choice. Don't make it lightly. And this week, when we have that same conversation with someone else, they are going to react in those same two ways. And again, you and I won't have to twist arms or manipulate into tears or play the 43rd verse of just as I am. If someone comes on the 43rd verse, it's not because, oh, the Spirit finally broke through. They're hungry and they want to go home. Maybe you've not been in those services. I have. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit is working, He doesn't have to have that kind of, I'm not sure, support or, or otherwise. When you and I tell the truth about Jesus, some are going to listen and say, I I want that, I need that. Where has this been? There are others who are going to walk away and say, I don't want that. Maybe they'll think it through more later, maybe they won't. Some of them may tell us exactly what they think of this news and start throwing rocks. But they will react. There will be a response And some of them, led by the Holy Spirit, are going to say, tell me more. And then Philip was gone, carried away by the Holy Spirit. There's no discipleship program. This Ethiopian eunuch heads on south, continuing to read the Scriptures. Philip is deposited somewhere else. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if he was caught up like Elijah and dropped off somewhere else. We aren't told exactly what it looks like other than the Spirit caught Philip away and he ends up at Azotus. But much like the disciples heading back to Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension, the eunuch's response isn't shock and horror that this man disappeared. He's rejoicing that he has seen Jesus. And Philip shows up in Azotus, not very far from, from Gaza. It's another mostly Greek-speaking city, not a lot of Jews there. And he works his way back north along the coast, preaching the gospel wherever he lands. And he ends up in the city of Caesarea. That's where Peter's going to go in Acts 10. It's where Philip and his daughters are still living when Paul and Luke and company get there 20 years later in Acts 21. So apparently Philip liked the area. But in the meantime, the eunuch goes on home. We aren't told if others came to Christ because of him. 
is a few more centuries down the line before his kingdom becomes known as a center of Christianity in Africa. But it would be surprising if the subject never came up. But in the meantime, the church kept growing. Not just in numbers, but in location and in what kinds of people were welcomed in. So we start, the, we start Acts with a bunch of Palestinian Jews on a mountain outside of Jerusalem. Now we have Jews and Samaritans and at least one dark-skinned Gentile who wasn't allowed in the temple but heard Jesus say, come in, come near. And Jesus is just getting started. In chapter 9, he's going to bring in a persecutor of the church. In chapter 10, he's going to spell out his plans for the rest of humanity. And today, he's still building his church. By his word, one gospel conversation at a time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are still at work. That you don't wait for us to scheme and strategize and come up with a plan. But that you have from all eternity made up your mind to love and to gather a people. And to do that by a message of a crucified king. Of a man killed but raised and enthroned forever. Would you give us wisdom this week to live in this good news? To live as those who are bought with a price. To see opportunities in front of us to share good news with people who desperately need it, whether they know it or not. Would you grant that our, that our words and our deeds would be filled with joy and confidence and hope because of this Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.